Welcome everyone to the Polaris podcast. I am Jeremy Whitbeck, a partner of the Polaris Wealth Advisory Group, and we have on with us Jeff Powell. Jeff is our managing partner and chief investment officer. Jeff, it's great to talk to you today. Good morning. We have a new uh, guest with us today. Uh, his name is Chip. So Chip is actually based in New York and is the principal and co-founder of a company called ACC Space. And his specialties include tenant representation and uh, property sales of commercial property. So Chip, it's really nice to have you on as well. Jeremy, thank you for having me. Jeff, always good to see you. Good to see you as well, Chip. Yeah, so uh, gentlemen, really looking forward to our conversation today. This is something that certainly had a lot of prominence in the uh, the market. Uh, we're seeing a lot of coverage on it, and that's with regard to real estate and uh, just a lot of the uh, different trends that have been taking place in the real estate. So Jeff, if you don't mind, I'll uh, kind of ask my first question to you, but how do uh, people traditionally invest in real estate? Well, there's a, a few different ways of, of being able to invest in real estate. I mean, there's the traditional, you know, buy it yourself, uh, buy the actual physical property yourself. Obviously, uh, that's more traditional for single family dwellings uh, and so on. In some cases, if somebody has a high enough net worth and can go out and buy a, an apartment building or maybe a condo complex, you know, something that's only a few units, they, they can sometimes physically do that themselves. Uh, but then what you typically will see is that people will either buy units in a limited partnership uh, where they're buying uh, into you know, a much larger uh, real estate investment itself, uh, or they can actually go out into the public markets and buy a real estate investment trust, which is, I think, where uh, most of our clients probably have the greatest amount of their experience. I mean, not that they don't have their own homes and so on, which they but they do, but uh, if they're going to go make an investment uh, outside of their primary residence, a lot of people uh, are actually going out and actually buying REITs uh, for their portfolio. Thanks, Jeff. And uh, when we look at the different investment vehicles, obviously, uh, they're not all the same. There's actually different classes or different categories of real estate that can be invested in. Chip, do you mind walking us through what are the different flavors of real estate that are available to investors? Well, uh, you could purchase industrial real estate, which has been the hot commodity, really, based on the Amazon effect. Everybody's, you know, selling goods and services online, and uh, it, that effect has been increasing across the board. Target, you know, Best Buy, everybody is gobbling up this high-ceiling distribution warehouse space. The mar that market's probably doubled in the past two years as far as valuation and, and rental rates, um, and also has a, a fairly low return based on that. And there's still a strong appetite on the institutional side. Blackstone is just gobbling that stuff up, high ceiling warehouse, and they're actually developing brand new uh, high ceiling distribution sites um, on spec. You know, that's been a hot commodity. And, you know, they're buying the, the dirt site unseen, uh, you know, based on the fact that they can lease it up in two year period and and rents will continually appreciate. Uh, so that's the industrial side. You have the office side, which is your traditional office space. And, you know, COVID put a nice dent in that as people started working from home. Um, however, it's seen a slight uptick. Um, you have retail, which stores, malls, shopping centers, uh, that sort of thing was also considered a dying asset uh, pre-COVID. COVID hit, everyone thought retail was done, but it's actually seeing somewhat of a, a resurgence of late. And then you have uh, multifamily. So it's uh, apartments, multi like apartment rentals typically. 
anything commercial is considered four units and up. Uh, so, and then a small piece of that uh, residential component is, is single family dwellings. Uh, we're seeing some institutions purchase uh, them in bulk, maybe whether it be a planned community of single family residences and renting them or selling them off on condos. Got it. So yeah, quite a different uh, pieces of real estate that can be invested in depending on what a person's goals or, uh, or beliefs are about the future. Chip, you hit on a couple interesting points there where uh, it wasn't too long ago where everyone was talking about the death of certain classes of real estate. Obviously, COVID hit, turned the world upside down, and now we're seeing, in a lot of cases, uh, 180 uh, in terms of price movement and forward expectations. I mean, what is the underlying driver of the surge in real estate prices? I mean, you hit on industrial, um, and maybe, Jeff, this is something that uh, you should uh, also uh, uh, give your uh, insight on, but why now is real estate really surging to levels that we haven't ever seen before? I think part of it is it could be an inflation risk because it's a tangible asset that people can own, they can touch, they can feel it. It's not just, you know, um, it's not just money that's printed uh, so they can sell it at a later date. Um, they have a tangible asset. Uh, one, one thing is compression of interest rates. Interest rates are at, you know, record lows and people can buy uh, industrial uh, multi, like a stabilized industrial asset and get like a 3.8% interest rate or multifamily is probably around 3.5 3.6 based on these factors there's going to be a lot of buying it's cheap money because if you can uh, get it let's say a cap rate which is your turn your noi divided by the price if your cap rate is going to be higher than what you're borrowing you're going to have positive leverage and so you know it's just it's the, those uh, those are the main factors and i'm sure um jeff can elaborate more on interest rate factor and kind of what has been fueling that yeah i mean to, to your exact point uh chip i mean the, i think that one of the things that are uh that we got to keep in mind is you know, there's the age-old location 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 element that we've got to look at so when we are talking about price movements things of that nature you know, obviously uh, we've seen a tremendous price movement uh on both coasts uh obviously across the board on a national basis as well but we've seen uh, just an, an outward demand behind it. Uh, you used a couple of terms that I think are are worth kind of digging into a little bit more. You mentioned NOI and, and cap rates, and you know, capitalization rate is just simply the the income, that, the net operating income that you're getting, uh, which in English means what's the net income. So net my cost, what am I taking home? So what, net your mortgage, net your insurance, net you know, maintenance cost, and so on, your property taxes what are you physically taking home in the way of income and i think that one of the things that also makes uh, all of this really attractive is that people uh, especially people that are nearing retirement or in retirement they're looking for income sources and their traditional income sources that they had in days past your your bonds for example were something that they would buy to supplement their income uh, and when you've got the 10-year treasury sitting at 1.3%, you've got inflation sitting in the low fives at the moment. Uh, again, we've talked a little bit about the, uh, is this temporary or permanent? But even if you looked at inflation over the last 50 years, it historically is sitting in a 3% range. Uh, you're not even getting a net income that's greater than your cost of, of living. And so people are looking outside of it. So I, I think that's a, a really important element to really kind of understand is that, we have seen some very good income levels 
uh, on the real estate market uh, as a direct result of it. Uh, the other thing that I would kind of toss into the mix of uh, everything that we're discussing here is really its location, its what kind of, of actual categorization. So again, are you looking at a, a piece of commercial real estate in downtown New York or downtown San Francisco or downtown LA where you're seeing a lot of people at least having to go back temporarily and probably will never go back to work the same way, but it's also pushing a lot of those demographics out into areas that uh, we've never seen traditionally, the same sort of price movement, but it's purely based upon a demographic shift. So the thing that I would throw out, Jeremy, and the, the whole thing, and it's kind of a reiteration of why we have Chip and Swissel on our show today, is really to, to reiterate the fact that it is absolutely imperative uh, to be working with somebody who is an expert within their field and understand, you know, for us, I mean, obviously, we certainly get involved in, in people's real estate, the real estate purchases, getting involved in 1031 exchanges and so on. But uh, we're then traditionally going on and talking to people like a, a Chip Entwistle uh, to make sure that we have our finger on the pulse of exactly what's going on from a... Uh... Yeah, well, Jeff, thank you for uh, kind of that background on how to uh, look at it. And I think uh, the point that you raised about um, working with uh, a professional that really understands how these factors can influence the price is imperative. Um, and certainly... Um, we talked a lot in uh, previous podcasts about the importance of uh, recognizing the role of inflation and how certain assets will use that as a tailwind and some assets kind of fight that head on. And it sounds like uh, based on both your commentary that uh, inflation actually is helping real estate at the moment where it's served as a tailwind. It's uh, really elevated the price levels due to replacement costs going up, income going up since you can charge more in rents. And so it certainly makes a lot of sense on why we're seeing uh, really some of the biggest rises uh, or at least most rapid rises that many investors have seen uh, in, in a number of years. Um, on that, obviously, the rise in inflation can be a double-edged sword. So I think it's worth uh, asking here if this does end up resulting in interest rates drifting up. I mean, is that something that investors should be concerned about? Is there anything that, uh, that they can do if that's going to be an eventual um, pathway that the uh, market ends up taking. So Jeff, if you don't mind, uh, what are your thoughts here? Yeah, um, and I do want to uh, have Chip also uh, jump in on this as well. But I mean, uh, we've been talking a lot about tapering. And so really, um, when we're talking about real estate, the one of the, Chip already hit on the, the net operating income. And obviously, part of the net operating income is the cost to carry of debt. And so that's where it can have a negative impact. And, and again, kind of drives on the point of uh, working with uh, an expert within the area in order to, to get the right financing, to get the right property. Uh, in some cases with, uh, again, the structure of deal can really have a massive influence on uh, the appreciation of the property based upon, are you uh, carrying the cost yourself or are you doing a triple net lease where you're able to pass on those costs uh, on other people. But really, again, on an interest rate basis, we've hit a lot on tapering and the, the impact that tapering might have uh, on interest rates, a lot of lending being done, uh, obviously on the 10-year treasury uh, as a, an influence of where lending is going to go. And obviously, as you see a steepening of the yield curve, uh, that will be an impact on it. So again, for maybe somebody who missed the tapering conversation, uh, tapering is just simply the, uh, the cutting back of bond purchasing. So the Federal Reserve right now buying uh, $120 billion a month uh, between treasuries and mortgage-backed securities uh, being split two-thirds, one-third, 80 billion, and uh, 
treasury and 40 billion in mortgage backed securities. So with that, uh, we are seeing uh, things that are going on that front. Once the Federal Reserve has uh, kind of moved on from other, um, the buying of, of bonds, uh, the Federal Reserve has also made it very clear that they have intention on in raising rates. We don't see that being a, a huge risk to this market in the short term. The tapering is the much bigger bigger risk because there's no way in the world that the Federal Reserve will start raising rates uh, while they're tapering. It, it would be counterintuitive for them to be doing that. So uh, in that regard, really one of the things that we want to be looking at, uh, the impact of first tapering and then uh, then Fed's funds rates because both will have an influence on where people are able to borrow in, in a future. Uh, but beyond yeah. that, Chip, I mean, maybe you can kind of hit on uh, the other things that you're seeing that are, are influencing the uh, the pricing of the real estate market. Yeah, um, you know, it, supply and demand. You know, we're seeing increased demand for pe for companies to rent industrial space when they used to go to a store to buy things. Everybody's getting it shipped online, so uh, rental rates are increasing significantly. On um, you know, industrial rents are going up, so you're seeing appreciation, which is you know the key thing is is rent. You know that's your income in your to get you to your NOI. Um, and the same thing we are seeing also in uh, apartment rentals. Apartment rentals are increasing significantly as more and more people started working from home. Um, you know everybody you know needed more space to spread out, and they're isn't a large supply of apartments and it's actually cheaper to buy existing stock versus building because uh, construction costs have also increased significantly probably 40 percent in the past year um which is another interesting factor that could be waiting in the in the wings um you know inflationary so uh you know and, you, and you're kind of seeing you know suburban suburban apartment buildings has a very high demand and that's where you're seeing most of the construction and outside the major suburbs of you know the san francisco los angeles uh new york um and you're seeing a lot of that actually from south of new york because you're seeing um you're seeing investors in new york they're confused because the prices haven't really gone down that much the expenses have gone uh up and there hasn't really been this effect uh, from COVID yet that's driving prices down. So they've been kind of looking for areas where people are moving to where there's job growth to invest, uh, like in Atlanta, Georgia, or in Charleston, South Carolina, North Carolina, uh, you know, areas that have lower barriers of entry. So lower, lower taxes, it's just cheaper and you can buy, let's say you, you want to buy an apartment building in New York, you're looking at a five to five and a half percent cap rate. Whereas if you go, I mean, and in the city during COVID, if you bought in Brooklyn, you're buying it a three cap. Now that's up to like five caps. So the immediate boroughs were, I think, significantly impacted on the rental side. And th those investors are kind of looking out of state. And then you also have um, the 1031 effect, which we can talk about on another subject. Uh, I mean, that's a, that's a separate topic. So like Biden's been talking about eliminating the uh, 1031 exchange which has also kind of panicked certain people. I don't think it's gonna get eliminated um, just because there's too many uh, people that are invested in real estate and it would kind of decimate things because people could sell, they could buy, they can defer their capital gains tax. If they can't defer their capital gains tax uh, that they've been doing for years, it's, it's gonna be a problem for anyone buying and selling real estate.
Yeah, sure. Thank you. And you certainly um, you covered a few different uh, areas there. And the one um, at the beginning of your comments, you talked about a triple net lease and just something that you also hit on. And I think that this is something that really uh, shouldn't, uh, I guess, be missed by our audience, because one of the most compelling things about uh, some of the different uh, areas of real estate and for anyone that's done more, say, single home dwelling type of real estate investing, they're probably not familiar with the triple net lease concept. It's literally, excuse me, the passing on of certain expenses to your tenants. And so it can be a dramatic risk reducer to uh, real estate investors. So if you don't mind, can you elaborate a little bit yeah. more on what is included in a triple net lease? Absolutely. A, tri a triple net lease uh, means that the tenant is responsible for pretty much all of the expenses. Sometimes absolute net. Well, it means they're responsible for CAM, common area maintenance and taxes. Um, and a lot of times all repairs with the exception, sometimes at the exception of roof and structure. If roof and structure is part of the lease, I mean, that's typically the landlord's responsibility or replacement of the roof. Absolute net lease means the tenant's responsible for anything. Like I'm giving you, take the building, here's your land, you build it, you're responsible for everything, and you cover all the expenses. Um, so triple net leases are typically done in retail environment and in an industrial markets. Office has been traditionally uh, the landlord's responsibility to carry a lot of the expenses, and office can tend to be very capital intensive as far as landlords being responsible for the tenant improvements, meaning building out a portion of the space, the taxes, the cleaning, the cam, uh, which is uh, snow removal, maintenance, uh, th those sort of things. So, I mean, by, pur by purchasing triple net leased assets, you're passing all that risk of, let's say, the cost of cleaning or the cost of maintaining or increase in taxes, right? So, they're covering all the taxes. One so. thing that comes to mind a little bit there too, Chip, uh, with that same thing is is uh, sort of two other things. Uh, I have to imagine that the actual um, the tenant themselves is a dictating factor behind it. You know, are you dealing with somebody that is, uh, you know, a triple A AAA rated uh, publicly traded company versus a mom and pop store? Um, right. Uh, assuming that that would also have a pretty material uh, influence on what's going on uh, within it. Uh, and then really, when we're taking it one step further, again, um, I would have to imagine kind of the, the supply demand also kind of probably dictates a, a little bit to do with uh, what we're seeing from that context of can a owner, you know, demand a triple net lease versus having a retail space that's completely open, uh, I'm assuming that they would have a, a tougher time passing on a triple net lease. I mean, again, I'm no expert. I'm kind of uh, stating it, but kind of asking the question. But I'm assuming that those are both influences on uh, you know, how the uh, the owner of a piece of property is able to price it, correct? Absolutely. And, and it's also it's it's credit. Like if you're if you have an asset that is maybe troubled and you're somewhat desperate for tenants um, and you'd be willing to take a mom and pop, you know, that mom and pop is going to have more leverage as far as getting the landlord to cover some of these expenses. Um, whereas if it's, if, if you're a high demand asset 
class and your center is or your and your industrial space is going like industrial landlords can really set the, the stage they can say i i want triple net you want to come into my space you're going to pay me a triple net rent and regardless of your credit or anything because if you walk from the deal fine i'll get a better credit tenant that's willing to give me what i want so yeah it, it's driven by you know credit and from, from the landlord's strength perspective, it's it, it's really supply and demand. But like when you drive by a Chick-fil-A, Chick-fil-A does all triple net leases and they pay an exorbitant amount of money. Like for a, a triple net uh, Chick-fil-A in like Westbury, they pay uh, Long Island, which is a suburb outside of Manhattan. They pay like $400,000 a year, triple net, 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 net. Landlord's not responsible for anything. So, or maybe they might just build the structure Give them the structure, give them the keys, and then they do their own fit out. Those are kind of the dream kind of deals that you want. You, as, but also that poses some risks too. Is your tenant a franchisee? Or are you getting Chick-fil-A on the hook? A lot of times you're going to get the franchisee. The preference is to get like, like a lot of people for at some point, they love getting banks. You buy a freestanding Bank of America or a freestanding Chase. You know why? Because you're going to get Chase on the hook and they're not going anywhere right so and they're going to pay you for the next 20 years x you know you're going to get it it's easy to get your financing on it because the bank knows what you're getting and you know but those are typically compressed cap rates because they're like it's like a bond you know it's a it's more of a core asset yeah chip and uh, appreciate uh, the insight there <clears throat> and as you go through those various factors i mean i think the important thing for us all remember is this is where an expert like yourself brings a lot of value to the table because these are all things that you just quite frankly wouldn't know unless you're in the industry, you've done these deals. And so um, can't stress enough to our audience that if this is an area that you're that you're looking into, I mean, you really the, the devil's in the details, right? It's knowing who you're working with, if there's a better way to structure the deal um, and then making sure that you position yourself accordingly. Um, the, the cap rate um, has been thrown around a little bit and thank you both for really defining what that is. And the, I guess the million dollar question is what cap rate should we be targeting in these type of markets? And, and I throw this out there a little bit self-serving because I have clients that I'll do portfolio reviews and I'll see that their cap rate is one, one and a half percent. And so in my assessment, right, that's a, uh, an asset that uh, is not pulling its weight. But the question is, well, where is that point that it should be? So um, Jeff, if you don't mind, I mean, what are, what are some of the levels that uh, we would want to see if we we're going to take on that kind of risk? Yeah, it's a great question. I mean, I think that it's, it's a very, very, very specific to, uh, to client levels. I mean, obviously, you know, there's a, a double-edged sword to a cap rate uh, when you're doing an evaluation of a client that's sitting at 1%. It means that they've made a lot of money. The, the, the capital appreciation of, the, of that particular piece of real estate has gone up pretty substantially. Uh, so again, if you bought a million dollar property and you were getting, uh, again, let's say uh, uh, you're making a hundred grand off of it in an NOI situation, net, of, uh, net operating income to you, you've got a 10% cap rate. Uh, if the property then appreciates, it doubles in value, uh, obviously, then your cap rate uh, has gone in half. So now you've got a $2 million mm -hmm. property that's making the same $100,000 in income. Now, hopefully, again, as an investor, you have a, the ability to continue to pass on some of those expenses uh, and you're able to get a higher rent and so on uh, to be able to keep pushing your cap rates up. 
Uh, but that's part of the issue, especially on both coasts, both New York as well as as California in particular, but you're also seeing it in the Pacific Northwest and the Seattle area in particular, and I'm sure that uh, uh, Chip can kind of elaborate that it's not just New York, you're seeing it in the Philadelphia area and the other major metropolitan areas along the, the East Coast as well. Um, really for me, if, if I'm going out, I wanna see a minimum of 6% cap rate. Again, it depends on if we're looking at kind of an income property, a growth in income, a growth property. Again, to what Chip was talking about, there, the you know, there's a lot of different types of investing that you w can be making, and not all of it is going to be driven on income, but value will be driven on the income that's being derived from the actual property itself. So it's kind of dovetailed together within it. But uh, if I'm looking at, you know, again, depending on the type of of investments, I mean, we we've been using an exchange fund uh, that is doing. Uh, triple net lease uh, they're they're huge name of co uh, the companies uh, that are leasing the properties that we're purchasing are huge well-known uh, names that are not going anywhere also kind of like chip was talking about with a bank uh, so getting a six percent income on really safe properties makes sense otherwise i would like to see if i'm taking a a higher risk in the real estate that i actually have i'd like to see high single digit low double digit uh returns uh, that are coming our way so we talk about a cap rate but we're also uh, needing to look at uh what's called irr or what is uh, obviously the net return uh the total return of an actual property uh, i would be looking at, uh, at wanting to see a internal rate of return that's in the double digits 10 12 15 percent would be what i would be hoping for out of a property and, and that that's where you know leverage comes into play because you know leverage is it takes that, that helps you with your internal rate of return and you know to get your IRR you have to look at you know, forward looking what your dis potential disposition um, value would be. Let's take that one step further to ship on that conversation because uh, again uh, when we use terms like leverage I'm not 100% certain that everybody would fully understand what we're talking within it. So that same example I used of a million dollar property. Um, someone's not going to put a million dollars down on it is essentially what I believe you're saying in the process. So in a case of, of commercial and, and uh, more of the um, institutional investing, you're, you're not going to go out and put 20% down on it. You might put more like 30, 35% down on it, but just for our purposes to make the math simple, uh, let's just say it's 50% uh, is loan and 50% is uh, actual uh, ownership itself, we would be talking about a loan to value, or what is also known as LTV of 50%. So you've got, you have the capital of it, and you've got the other side. And, and really kind of for us, what we're looking for is, okay, what's the income, but also what's the, the price appreciation of the real estate? And that together mm -hmm. is the, the uh, internal rate of return. Yeah, and you also look at rent bumps, escalations, typically, you know, on an office or industrial, it's 3% per, per annum, say, would be a, a fixed uh, rent bump. In retail, I guess it's every five years, there's like a 10%, so you look at like a 2.5% is the market, so those are other factors, like look at what type of asset class it is and, and what type of um, rent escalations are built in, so you know you know what your income is going to be in year five you're going to know what your debt is going to be and then you can project maybe your disposition cost to figure out your return on your investment so that's just more of the uh nuts and bolts of how, how the property operates 
Yeah, and that's, uh, I think that that's the really interesting part about real estate is that when you structure the deal properly, you know exactly what your cash flow is going to be, you know, for the most part, what your taxes are going to be, especially in a state like California, <clears throat> where we have um, uh, stated increases. I know not every state operates that way, but there's certainly a, a lot of math and science that goes into uh, real estate investing that you're alluding to, Chip, so people can get a really strong handle on what their realistic cash flow is going to be and their realistic rate of return. Um, and so one last question kind of uh, end uh, our conversation. And this is one that uh, we get a lot and that is the stock market versus real estate. Obviously they both have their different qualities. They both have uh, uh, things that they can do for investors. And so I guess, uh, what are your thoughts? I mean, should investors be looking at one over the other? Obviously there's the answer is probably somewhere in the middle. Um, what would be the uh, way for a person to think about their overall portfolio? So Jeff, if you don't mind uh, sharing your uh, your thoughts on that. Yeah, so I'll try to, try to tie this up in a nice little bow. I appreciate everything that Chip has uh, brought to the table for us. We'll, we'll bring him back on for uh, maybe dovetailing in and getting into some, some stronger detail behind it. Um, it is the $64,000 question that we get asked on a regular basis, like what percentage I should have here or there. Um, and one of the things that I always tell our, our clients is that if you're looking at a million dollars in real estate versus a million dollars in, in uh, the stock market, it's not a fair fight uh, because the million dollars that you've purchased in real estate, it's not really typically a million dollars in equity. It's normally they've gone out and they've bought a million dollar property and they're not looking at it in the same fashion uh, that they would uh, with a regular property. But let's just say that somebody went out. And they did buy you know, multiple buildings and, and so on. And they had a million dollars tied up in real estate versus, uh, and I mean, capital versus having a million dollars in the stock market, bond market. Um, they're going to have leverage working room. Uh, Chip already kind of hit on that a little bit, which is that uh, leverage is your friend uh, in real estate as long as real estate values are going up. So if we're seeing, uh, and again, just using simple math, someone goes out and buys a million dollar property, they put 20% down on it. So maybe they're collecting a few single family dwelling homes themselves and they're able to that, get that kind of loan to value uh, from the bank and get the bank to lend based upon that. If we saw, let's just say a 5% uh, uh, average return in real estate growth, which is uh, the historics are more like four, but we, if we say we saw 4% over a five year time period, you've more than doubled the underlying uh, equity that you have in your house because your property will be worth 1.2, 1.25. You've got 200 in it and it's now worth uh, 1.2. You now have $400,000 worth of equity versus $200,000. So you can see a, a much faster scale where obviously when we talk to people about the stock market, uh, it's normally the rule of 72, which is how whatever your return is uh, put into, if you divide 72 by it, it's how quickly your money will double. So a 10% return your money's gonna double in about seven years, 7% return, money's gonna double every 10 years. So that's kind of where you're looking at it with it. Now, is one better than the other? Oh, the, the huge advantage of being involved in the stock market in particular is the liquidity element to it. Um, you're not able to quickly get out of a piece of property uh, if you're in a, um, a, uh, a private investment, you typically have to have somebody else being willing to buy that or wait until the actual uh, person who's running the property has a willingness to sell the property. So you need to have a lot more longevity, typically a seven year time period, I would say it would be a fairly common uh, length of time in which you would wanna like have your money uh, or expect to have your money being tied up. So there's pluses and minuses with both. Uh, obviously to, to us having both 
is what makes those the most amount of sense. So we kind of look at it as a uh, about a third of your money uh, should be kind of tied up within the, the real estate market. So if you have a, a million dollar net worth, you should have about three hundred thousand dollars, three hundred you know fifty thousand in equity tied up in real estate, not what you just went out and purchased it. Now, obviously, if you got a ten million dollar net worth, I mean, you can do the math and just again say uh, that you should have approximately three, uh, three point five, and uh, tied up in the physical equity uh, within real estate itself. Now, that's a uh, a imperfect science to sit there and throw out. These are approximations. Having a little bit more or a little bit less is uh, is absolutely fine. Uh, but that's where uh, we typically would be saying having a kind of a two thirds, one third uh, to be able to have the liquidity. Uh, as well as having uh, the the types of returns that we've seen within the stock market. Jeff, well, thank you uh, the, uh, very much for uh, just kind of wrapping that up for us. And Chip, really appreciate your uh, expertise and insights with regard to real estate. I'm definitely uh, looking forward to uh, a future conversation where we can dive into some of the other topics that we breached a little bit, a big one being 1031 exchanges. I know that that's still uh, something that's being uh, heavily debated. Um, just in Congress, um, and so uh, it's something that I'm sure uh, our audience would really enjoy uh, having a conversation on or some dialogue with regard to that. But uh, for all of our listeners, I hope you enjoyed uh, everything that we had to uh, talk about with real estate, hopefully give some insights into some of the things to consider. And, also, and as always, if you do have real estate or if you're considering real estate and would like to uh, speak with someone please reach out to Jeff, myself, your wealth advisor, your sales director, but we're all here to help you have a um, very um, unbiased conversation as to what makes sense, what will help reach your goals, and uh, perhaps some of the uh, things that you should consider as you make uh, an important purchase. And uh, as always to our audience, um, be happy, be safe, and be healthy. Polaris Wealth Advisory Group, LLC, is a federally registered investment advisor. The information, statements, and opinions expressed in this material are provided for general information only and are subject to change without notice. This material does not take into account your particular investment objectives, financial situation, or needs, is not intended as a recommendation to purchase or sell any security, and is not intended as individual or specific advice. It should not be construed as investment, legal, or tax advice. Before acting on this material, you should consider whether it is suitable for your particular circumstances and, if necessary, seek professional advice. Polaris Wealth does not offer professional, legal, or tax advice. All information contained herein is believed to be accurate, but accuracy cannot be guaranteed. Advisory services are only offered to clients or prospective clients where Polaris Wealth Advisory Group, LLC, and its representatives are properly licensed or exempt from licensure. Past performance is no guarantee of future returns. Diversification does not assure a profit or protect against loss. Investing involves risk and possible loss of principal capital. No advice may be rendered by Polaris Wealth Advisory Group, LLC, unless a client service agreement is in place. Polaris Wealth Advisory Group, LLC, is a federally registered investment advisor. The information, statements, and opinions expressed in this material are provided for general information only and are subject to change without notice. This material does not take into account your particular investment objectives, financial situation, or needs, is not intended as a recommendation to purchase or sell any security, and is not intended as individual or specific advice. It should not be construed as investment, legal, or tax advice. Before acting on this material, you should consider whether it is suitable for your particular circumstances and, if necessary, seek professional advice. Polaris Wealth does not offer professional, legal, or tax advice. All information contained herein is believed to be accurate, but accuracy cannot be guaranteed. Advisory services are only offered to clients or prospective clients where Polaris Wealth Advisory Group, LLC, and its representatives are properly licensed or exempt from licensure. Past performance is no guarantee of future returns. 
Diversification does not assure a profit or protect against loss. Investing involves risk and possible loss of principal capital. No advice may be rendered by Polaris Wealth Advisory Group, LLC, unless a client service agreement is in place.